Podcast. Hey listeners, if you're enjoying our content, you're going to love our friends over at the Pivot Talks podcast. Pivot Talks is a weekly series where Pivot Methods founder and Power Yoga Canada co-founder Pauline Caballero connects with entrepreneurs, friends, dreamers, and doers on a variety of topics revolving around pivoting business and navigating change. Check it out wherever you get your audio. That's Pivot Talks podcast. This is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, the podcast where we speak to all kinds of amazing entrepreneurs and creators doing things in business and beyond. You guys loved this conversation with John Warlow, so we are re-airing it here today. He is the founder of the Value Builder System, software that's been used by thousands of businesses worldwide. He's also the author of three books, including the best-selling Built to Sell, which you probably heard of, recognized by both Fortune and Inc. as one of the best business books of 2011. He's also the host of Built to Sell Radio, which you can find wherever you get your podcasts. And it should be noted that he's done all this after an amazing entrepreneurial career. So with that intro out of the way, let's get to it. Here again is John Warlow. We've got a ton of business owners and entrepreneurs listening to this podcast that are asking themselves, so I've got a business, I'm operating a business. When is the right time for me to sell? How do you help folks get clarity on that? The right time to sell is when someone's buying. So if somebody approaches you with an acquisition offer or you know the, the classic, I'd like to have a strategic conversation with you or a partnership conversation, those are all veiled sort of... Uh, discussion or you know signals that they they're interested in buying your company and so that's the very best time to sell because you've got the ultimate negotiating leverage when you are being courted the other way to think about it though Adam and I I don't know in your case if this was relevant for your last company but this this thing called the freedom point I think is very relevant and and that is when an owner reaches the freedom point when the value of their company if they sold it, the after-tax proceeds after the frictional cost, once you paid your M&A professional, et cetera, if that's enough money to generate enough income for you to do whatever you want, whenever you want to, the question becomes like, why keep going? And I think it's, it's, it's worth asking that for some people it's because I want to, you know, Brian Scudamore, I know you've had on the show. It's like, he has like this huge vision, right? And, and, and he is really on this sort of very, focused goal to, to achieve that. And that's fine. And that, that works for him. But for other people, they view business ownership as a means to an end. And when you've reached that freedom point, it's just, it begs the question, why keep going? And then really being clear, the risk you're taking in keeping going, because if this pandemic has caused us to sort of realize anything, it's that nothing is safe, right? And no matter how stable you think your company is, and how wonderful you think your company is, there's always a black swan around the corner and many people are sitting here at the end of 2020 saying, I wish I'd sold at the end of 2019. Timing is, is difficult uh, with respect to a black swan, but if, if you're comparing sort of the timing of when one should sell a business versus this idea of selling at the freedom point, how can an owner discern whether or not this is sort of the peak time or peak valuation for their business? You know, I talk to entrepreneurs about this all the time. The, the idea that the, the you know the aspiration is to sell when they reach the top, right? When when their business is at its absolute zenith, when the economy is booming, 
and and interest rates are low and there's lots of acquires and that's when I'm going to sell. Well, first of all, if if you have that good a crystal ball, like <laughs> I'm all in because nobody knows that. Number one. So I think trying to time it in that regard is challenged at the best of times. But what's more, you have to put your money somewhere, right? So you sell. Fantastic. You just sold and, you know, the TSX is at whatever it is, 16,000 points. Great. You've got to buy into the TSX. Oh, you don't want to buy the stocks. You want to buy commercial real estate. Great. Commercial real estate, same market being affected by interest rates below 1% is propping up the value of just about any assets. You want to buy a vacation home, same thing. So we have to do something with the money. So if you're trying to time the sale of your company the, the same metrics that are driving the value of your business, the same external metrics, interest rates primarily, are affecting everything. And so it's like selling a house. You got to go buy another house, right? It's, mm -hmm. We can all celebrate, you know? So I think that's, that's a bit of a, a misnomer, so to speak, uh, trying to time an exit in that regard. So are you seeing some of the thinking shift around this? Like how are entrepreneurs and owners behaving? Yeah. So we've actually just done a fairly big study on this topic. So we took, uh, we, we, we offer this thing called the value builder questionnaire, which helps an entrepreneur see their company as an acquirer would. And we've looked at the, the, the group of people who completed that questionnaire prior to the COVID-19 uh, pandemic being announced in March of 2020. We looked at the eight months prior and the eight months during COVID those first COVID months, those first eight months of COVID. And we compared and contrast the differences between the two cohorts. Fascinating couple of things. And it speaks to the MA activity and sort of the headspace change. Um, number one, as you might imagine, uh, during COVID, more business owners, about a 350% increase among business owners who, who think their business is going to decrease in the next 12 months, number one. That's causing business owners in large measure to want to sell. Right, thinking that their worst, you know, the, the 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 best days are behind them, so to speak, we're seeing an increase in the proportion of business owners who want to sell versus pass down their business to their kids. You know, there's a time when, you know, like the, the the eldest son would get the business from the father. It was like this is 100 years ago, of course. That's all changed, but increasingly, people are not wanting to pass their business down to their kids. That's dropped uh, by about 40%, the proportion of business owners who say they want to go through a family transition. And, and the proportion who say they want to sell their company has increased in about the same measure. We, we sort of have a, a hypothesis, and that is that business owners have been devastated by the pandemic on many, many levels. And, you know, both commercially, financially, and, and also psychologically. And many of them are now at the point where they don't want to pass the stress onto their kids. Uh, they want to sell, get out, and and get on with their life. What about the buy side? How are, um, you know, private equity folks, um, other institutions thinking about what types of companies are in favor right now? Yeah. So, so far the buy side is emboldened by low interest rates, right? So mostly in, in particular private equity, as you know, the, the private equity game is to buy low, sell high and use a lot of debt to finance things, right? So you ratchet up your ROI when you don't have a lot of skin in the game and you're just using a lot of debt. And as long as we have interest rates as low as they are right now, a lot of private equity companies are buying small, medium-sized businesses. Um, that only works However, when interest rates are as low as they are, 
if we get back to an environment where interest rates are normalized, so to speak, after the pandemic, I think we're going to see a, a big structural change in the market. But right now, as long as interest rates remain really low, it is a it is a very liquid market. Lots of sellers wanting to sell and lots of buyers wanting to buy. So there's just lots of activity right now. And given some of these predictions that, you, that you're thinking might come to fruition, do you see a shift back to basic business fundamentals happening, meaning companies with a profit-first approach to scaling becoming more attractive to buyers? I think it depends a little bit on the type of buyer. You know, when a strategic buyer, and that, generally a strategic buyer is a company for whom they have assets where your company is worth more in their hands than it is in as an independent business. And so you think about who the big players are in your industry. They may have big distribution channels, lots of salespeople, you know, ways to bring your product to market or, you know, ways to, that you could differentiate what they already offer, uh, in a kind of Coke Pepsi battle. And those guys are, are strategic acquirers. And oftentimes what your company is worth is more quantified by what it's worth in their hands. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, when, when Microsoft, for example, uh, bought LinkedIn and paid some astronomical valuation, I can't remember what it was, something like $26 billion. Microsoft didn't buy LinkedIn based on business fundamentals. They didn't buy it based on the, you know, the profits that the company was generating. Uh, so that's a strategic acquisition. And so there, a, a retreat back to normal profit dimensions and, and normal profit is, is not going to have a material impact in my view where, where I think we'll see more of that is with private equity companies. Again, private equity companies, they buy your business and they use debt and how do they get the debt? Well, they use the financials that you've been able to, to, to post to prove your ability to pay back that money, their ability to pay that back, back that money. And so the more profitable your business is and more consistently profitable, the more likely a bank will lend, lend against it. Just as an aside, you hit the nail on the head. So Microsoft acquired LinkedIn in 2016 for $26.2 uh, I was off by $200 yep. billion. <laughs> <laughs> So what about criteria for getting clarity on who you should sell to? So you mentioned strategics, right? Private equity firms, uh, search funds are out there, maybe even a client. How should owners be thinking about this? Generally speaking, there are three types of buyers, you know, for if you want to sell your business externally. So I'm not including, you know, passing it to employees or your family members. I'm saying if you want to sell your business to, to a third party, there are broadly speaking three categories, right? There, as we talked about strategics, then there are private equity groups. And the third we haven't spoken about are individual investors. And so individual investors are people who are typically buying themselves a job. And so they get laid off from a big company and they say, I want to own a business in this category and they buy one. So those are the three types of buyers that the, I think the one thing that you, you want to keep in mind when it comes to either private equity groups or, or in particular strategics is something called the five to 20 rule, which says that the most natural acquirer for your company is between five and 20 times uh, larger than your business is today. And so that really narrows the universe down of potential acquirers pretty quickly when you think about the five to 20 rule. Um, it's, it's a rule of thumb, by the way, not a rule, not a hard and fast rule. It is a rule of thumb. It doesn't always apply, but it's just a way for you to filter the likely people out. And, and you asked a great question, Adam, about like, should I be, should I care about this or should I be thinking about this or be proactive? One of the things 
that is the raw material, if you will, the, the essence, the requirement, the prerequisite for punching above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company is multiple offers. I mean, that's the secret sauce, right? Once you have multiple offers, you can really ratchet up a deal. And the secret to getting multiple offers is to be not closed off to any one particular buyer. So you may not want to sell to a private equity group, but man, they make a great pawn in a chess match to get a strategic to take notice or to get a strategic to ratchet up the value of their co of your company in their eyes. Even if you're sitting there saying, I would never sell to a private equity, I would never sell to a strategic, that's rare, but by the way, um, I, I just wouldn't, I wouldn't eliminate them from your long list of potential acquirers just because every acquire, every offer gives you leverage. Okay, so let's stay on this chess game for a moment. Is this is is not playing this game of, of trying to ratchet up multiple offers the biggest mistake you see owners make when it's time to sell? You know, it's related. I would say the biggest mistake is getting sucked into a proprietary deal. So a prop deal, as acquirers like to refer to it, is a deal in which you are negotiating with one company. In other words, they know there's no other competitors at the table. The problem with a prop deal, it's also referred to as a negotiated sale, but a prop deal effectively puts all of the negotiating leverage in the hands of the acquirer. And you may say, well, that's, you know, I've got a relationship with them. I trust them, et cetera. That's all well and good. But if they know a strategic acquirer know, or any acquirer for that matter knows that they're the only game in town, two things are likely to happen. Number one actually three. The first <laughs> is that they will generally pay the absolute minimum they can for your company. The minimum you would ever accept is what you'll end up selling for in most cases, uh, because they'll be able to essentially sniff out what you're willing to accept and, and, and likely not pay a penny more. Number one, number two, they will likely protract or extend due diligence. And, and that's because they know you're you're, you're getting more emotionally committed to the sale of your company, the longer diligence lasts. And, and so they'll, you know, they'll say in the, in the letter of intent, Oh, we need 60 days, but it'll drag on to 90 or 120. And it's like pulling a yarn on a sweater. If again, you're the only one there, you're effectively just negotiating with them. They know there's no rush, right? And every day that goes by, you're more emotionally committed, which is where the third problem with a prop a deal rears its ugly head, and that is what's called retrading. And retrading happens when the acquirer basically drops their price or makes the deal terms more putative at the end of diligence. And sometimes that's done because you know you you missed your numbers in during diligence, and it's it's totally uh, legit. But oftentimes it's illegitimate, meaning they do it because they know they can't. So if we can categorize these as risks associated with the sale process or the selling process, what are some of the mitigants that you suggest? As it relates to retrading is something called the retrading handshake. And basically it happens at the, at the LOI stage, letter of intent stage. And so what happens in the letter of intent is, is you have to give up negotiating with anybody else. In most, most cases, an LOI will include what's called a no-shop clause, meaning you agree as the seller to effectively not keep negotiating with other parties. And so at this point is where the, the leverage in the negotiation goes swiftly from you to them, to the buyer. And so it, it's at this point where the retrading handshake takes effect, which is basically you, you get up 
again, this is hopefully post COVID we'll be able to do this again, but you get up, you look the person across the table, who's the most senior person from the acquirer's uh, side in the eye and say, I will do this deal on one condition. Buyer says, okay, what's the condition? And you say, no retrading. And doing that uh, effectively does two things. Number one, it, it makes clear that you are agreeing to the terms as they are laid out in the LOI. Number two, it telegraphs to the buyer that you know what retrading is, that you're a sophisticated seller and you're not going to fall victim to the, the classic shenanigans that acquirers use to, to basically take advantage of the naivete of the marketplace. Did we miss strategic pacing? Where does this fit in? <laughs> yeah, you know, strategic pacing uh, is is a tactic used by uh, acquirers, right? They know, look, and, and, you know, I'd be curious to know if, if this happened to you, Adam, in your deal, but they, acquirers know that this is a an emotional time for you as a seller. But for a buyer, it's like, whatever, it's just another day at the office. You know, if you're a private equity group or you're like head of corporate development for some Fortune 500 company, eh, whatever, it's just like, it's another file. It's another opportunity, right? There's, it, there's nothing emotional. They are mercenaries. There's nothing emotional about it. But for you, it can be an incredibly emotional experience. And guess what? The acquirer knows that, right? So they'll use what's called strategic pacing, which means that they'll take a couple of days to get back to you. You'll send them an email and they'll take a week to respond. It's just some partner to private equity group basically playing you like a harmonica, right? Because they know that you're emotionally absolutely 1000% committed to this. But for them, it's just like, yeah, let me see what I can do. Let me see what I can get here. Let me, <laughs> let me play this guy for like a fiddle. And that's, that's the problem. Yeah, that makes sense. In terms of M&A representation... Where, you know, if, if you're a business owner and you're selling, how do you ensure you're seeking out the right representation is, is the first part of the question. And then second part of this question is what type of model, and now we see a variety of different representation models, but what type of model is most beneficial for the owner? I think you, you have to draw the distinction between a business broker and, M, and an M&A professional. So a business broker will generally sell smaller companies. Mm -hmm. They will generally list a company as if it were a house or a piece of commercial real estate. And that's the extent to which they market, in many cases, the business. Now, that's what I would consider a Main Street business broker and 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 probably not well served to the audience that you have. You, your audience mm -hmm. would likely not be well served. What you're looking for is a quality Main Street business broker or an M&A professional. How do you know the difference? The, the quality Main Street business broker is someone who is generally representing companies with a market value between one and $10 million. So if you think you're in this kind of snack bracket, it's going to be someone like a business broker, but a, but a, but a high quality one. And they're likely to, to ask to, to your point about how do you engage one? They are likely to ask for what's called a work fee or a consulting fee. And, and for them, that makes sense because there's an enormous amount of pre-diligence work, enormous amount of work that they need to do to get the business ready to sell. And if they didn't charge that fee, they would have just hundreds of tire kickers wasting and chewing through their time. And so that's one of the ways that they, they really try to scrutinize your and test your appetite to sell your business. A non-refundable work fee is effectively uh, a non-refundable deposit. It's usually a deposit against a success fee or a commission, meaning if you are successful at selling your commission, you can deduct that upfront payment in most cases 
but it, 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 it's an acid test for the broker to ensure you're serious. And the same is true of M&A professionals. Usually an M&A professional will engage somewhere north of $5 million, but many of them have a minimum cutoff of 10 uh, and, and some much, much, much higher than that. And effectively, they use a non-refundable work fee as, again, the same thing. It's a way to test your appetite to sell. If you're not willing to invest that 30, 40, 50, 60 grand up front, then they're going to be, well, you're not serious. And we only make the lion's share of our money by selling companies, not taking them to market and having them not sell. Let's shift gears for a moment to the valuation side of things. So lots of folks interested in what they can do right now to increase the value of their business. And on your site, actually, I was reading this today, you highlight eight value drivers when it comes to moving the needle on this. Some of these are obvious, like financial performance, growth potential, et cetera. But others I was reading or hearing for the first time, like the Switzerland structure. So do you give equal weight to each of these or how should we be thinking about this? I mean, the the one that I, I think will be music to your ears, given the book uh, that you've written and, and, and some of the work that you do is recurring revenue. Mm-hmm. right? So somehow creating some subscription-based or annuity-based revenue is one of the eight drivers, and it actually is one of the most important. If you've got annuity-based, contract-based, subscription-based revenue, it's one of the ways they say that this is going to be a predictable future stream of cash, which en- enables both private equity groups and strategics and, and individual investors, for that matter, uh, to get comfortable with the idea of buying your company. You've written a book on this topic as well called The Automatic Customer back in 2015. Do you see the timing of this book right now is even more relevant than before when it came out? I do. In the early days, subscriptions were the purview of media companies, newspaper companies, and then obviously software adopted it. And you know we all buy our software on a SaaS model nowadays. But I think what we're now seeing is the mass market, the, 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 the big belly of the of the business market has also started to think in terms of recurring revenue. And so that's where we're at now. So yeah, I think it's more you know relevant than ever. And um, yeah, I mean, like you know as we as we as we record this, we're in the throes of this pandemic, and you know retailers are absolutely far and away one of the worst affected companies, right? Because people yep. can't physically shop. Mm-hmm. yet, those that have found a way to move to subscription models have been able to sort of, in many cases, uh, soldier on. And so I, th- I think it's it's one of the, the secrets to building a valuable company is this is, is creating some subscription-based or recurring revenue. How does it change the valuation or, or, or the valuation multiple? Like, is it, you know, here's a business that has a traditional one-time purchase model they shift to a recurring revenue or subscription business model. Is it a 2x on top line kind of a change? Is it 3x, 4x to EBITDA kind of a change? Let me give you just a very simple example from an industry I think we've all used or are familiar with, and that would be security companies, right? So your home, you might have a, a security system in your home or your office. Those companies have two forms of revenue. They have the the installation revenue, then they've got the recurring or what they call in the security business monitoring revenue. Well, right now, a private equity company, and they're all trying to roll up these security companies, they're paying roughly 75 cents for every dollar of installation revenue, and somewhere between 2 and $3 for every dollar 
of recurring or monitoring revenue. Yeah, Said another way, in the security business, you're, you know, dollar for dollar, your subscription-based revenue is roughly worth three or four times that of your transaction model. And I think that's pretty typical in in most industries. There, there's some nuance to that, of course, and I'm sure you know, you've written about it in your book. There's the, the kind of the importance of the growth rate that also drives the valuation because it's one thing to have sticky customers, but if that base of customers isn't necessarily growing, that's going to discount your valuation. Equally, your churn rate is also going to have a big impact on the value of your business because your churn rate, the proportion of people that cancel your subscription, as your subscription company grows, that churn rate is going to become more and more difficult to stay ahead of. And so the bigger your company gets, the more important uh, churn is to the value of your uh, subscription business. Yeah, I think that's such a critical point. And we see this all the time with with companies that we work with, you know, very high emphasis on the front end or the customer acquisition side of things, Mm -hmm. Um, less so on the back end or post-transaction customer retention side of things. The biggest bang for buck ultimately is how uh, measured and how well a company can retain a customer once they are on board. I agree. And one of the things, the other reasons I think that that acquisition, along with being sort of sexy, gets a lot of attention in subscription companies is because it gives founders and executives instant feedback, right? So you, you run a campaign, you instantly see the impact on acquisition, and you can kind of go home at night and say, yeah, we made a difference today. Uh, we tweaked our model and we got an X percent lift. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Churn is this terrible cancer within your company that you don't know until it happens. It's very hard to predict, right? So you you won't see, you, you'll make a change in your model, your onboarding model, your customer satisfaction model, whatever, some change. And, and you will cross your fingers and hope that two or three years down the road, it will have an impact on your churn. But it takes years for some of those changes that you make today to start to play out in in terms of your churn rate. And that can be really frustrating because you can have all the forward-looking indicators you want, usage of your product, et cetera. But until that customer chooses to churn, you'll never know if the changes you made today are having the correct impact. So it's, it can be a very frustrating thing to focus on. Yeah, it's a perfect segue into my next question, actually, around customer lifetime value. So LTV to CAC or, or lifetime value to cost of acquisition, um, one of the most important metrics for any recurring revenue-based business and a metric that any serious buyer will look at. High-level rule of thumb that any business needs an LTV to CAC ratio of at least three to one, if not better. Is it, is it still the case? Uh, is it higher? Is it lower? Are businesses getting sold with low LTV to CAC ratios? What are you seeing? I think the biggest point to LTV to CAC that people oftentimes misunderstand or, or, or don't take into consideration is your CAC needs to be calculated at scale. Meaning once you've basically talked to all your old customers and got them to buy or made the case to buy, once you've done all that, that's all washed out of the system, how much does it cost you to acquire the next customer? And that is usually reliant on sales, marketing, click funnels, SEO, whatever, some some other external marketing tactic that you need to employ in order to win a customer. And that's what's going to be most important to acquire because they have no interest in acquiring your company and having it kind of continue on serving the same customers, selling the same product. And again, unless they're 
you know, some family office that just wants the cash, they are unlikely to be buying for that reason. What are the industries or sectors that you're seeing start to move in this direction of, of recurring revenue or subscription? Like you, you mentioned retailers are, are struggling. So that that's potentially a, a huge, uh, huge new change that, that we might see in the next few years. Um, beyond retail, are, are there any other industries or sectors that are, are moving fast into this world? Yeah, I mean, I mean, retailers are are certainly one for sure. Uh, you know, most of the service companies that are are out there ha- have the personal services, business services companies are starting to. If they aren't already, they're in the throes of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, one that you may not have thought about that I think is is a fascinating business to watch is car washes. You may remember two or three years ago, a lot of these guys created an unlimited car wash model, and and they've been very successful. And so when you look at what's going on in the M&A world in the car wash market, you've got two or three major private equity groups that are rolling up these mom and pop car washes who are using a transactional business model whose valuation is depressed because they're using a transactional business model. And they're saying, oh, we'll buy your business for a relatively low multiple. And they're basically flipping the switch and turning them into subscription businesses, rolling them into their private equity group, and then enjoying a huge bounce in value because they've moved to subscription. So that's one of the things that we're seeing in virtually every industry is private equity companies buying kind of mom and pop transactional businesses, flipping the switch, creating subscription revenue, and then enjoying the the benefits of that uh, in terms of the valuation of the company. I mean, you know, like I think about it, you know, like GNC declared uh, bankruptcy, you know, the, 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 the supplements company. Yeah, sure. Uh, and, and I think, man, like if there was ever a retailer that should have transformed itself into subscription, it would have been GNC. If you think about anybody who's a serious workout junkie, uh, you know, they need the regular hit of like protein powder and pre-workout and amino acids and all that shit that, that people, you know, pump through their bodies. Well, those are all things that customers run out of. And GNC has all these storefronts in all major malls across North America. Well, they're great acquisition points to get people to subscribe to your supplements. But it's a, it's an example of like an old school tired old business that just couldn't make the switch, couldn't figure out that people were buying this stuff from Amazon. So right now you've got Amazon who you know will sell you protein powder on Amazon subscribe and save. And that's great. But if GNC had been there first or had a product, a proprietary formula that they could differentiate themselves from Amazon, it's a way for, for a retailer to basically inoculate themselves from the one thing that Amazon does better than anybody else, which is one day shipping and Mm -hmm. and same day shipping in some markets, right? If you know that your customer wants a, a, a container of protein powder on the 26th day of every single month, well, GNC doesn't have to be better than Amazon at shipping. They can just move up their ship date by five days. Yeah. I think they, hold on, they revamped their gold rewards program in 2017, launching that My GNC Pro Access, which is like a variation on the Prime model. I didn't know that. Okay, and then Pro I'm, members, um, I've just I've got the data um, on this because I, I remember researching this company way back when. Their Pro members purchase. This is the, by the way the only. So you're right, John. This is the only bright spot in their entire business. So switching to this sort of access membership model. 
or this Prime-like VIP model in 2017 saw their pro members buy twice as often and spend, quote, significantly more than non-pro customers on their supplements. So there you go. What I would say, though, and I'm sure you see this in your own work, Adam, is that that one division of the company is saying, oh, let's have a subscription. And so they create a subscription over here, but they don't fundamentally change into a subscription company. So you still got retail store managers who are incentivized by same source sales or upselling customers in the store, right? Whereas what they should do is incentivize a customer manager for signing up people for the gold program or whatever they call it. Like that's the kind of level of integration that they need to create a recurring revenue model. Every person should not care about selling product in the store. They should be all about convincing people who come into the store to subscribe. In the last few minutes, um, I'm going to take the opportunity to plug your books, which are all awesome. Uh, Built to Sell, which was your first, I think, back in 2011, then Automatic Customer. And your new book, The Art of Selling Your Business, is slated to hit when, John? It drops on January 12th. Where else can, can people find you and connect with you? You know, I think all roads lead to builttosell.com. We put together, I think, some pretty cool little extra gifts for people who who order it uh, there. We're, you know, one of the things we're really excited about is this is this speaker series we put together where we put seven of the entrepreneurs who sold their company into a virtual speaker series, all delivered over Zoom over over the seven weeks from January to to March. And uh, it's just an opportunity for our readers to ask questions of these amazing. Uh, amazing business owners. So Jim Steinfeld, for example, the guy who sold built uh, blinds.com mm-hmm. uh, is going to do one. And I think it's just gonna be great. So those are, that's a little sort of extra spiff, I guess, for, for folks who uh, pre-order the book. So yeah, built to sell.com slash selling is the, you know, the best place to go. All this in addition to built to sell radio, which is your podcast and people can find that wherever they get their podcasts. And it's a, it's an amazing show. I've done, I've done some listening myself um, so keep up the podcasting, John. And uh, oh, thanks, man. Thank you so much for and taking you. the time today. Yeah, my pleasure. That's it, guys, for today. Thanks so much for listening. E2 is brought to you by Scriberbase. Want to build recurring revenue for your business? Visit Scriberbase.com for more info. If you enjoy the show, download, share, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also visit us at glow.fm slash E2 to become a supporter. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electrocast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electrocast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So, keep listening to Electrocast Podcasts and hear the culture. Electrocast. Hey guys, it's Miriam Love here, and I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, The Spanish Remixes, out now on Electric House Records. And always remember, be love, share love, all love.
available now wherever you listen to music. One, two, 